Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Family Secrets is a production of iHeartRadio. It was an impossible dilemma in the sense that we realized that any decision we made could lead to somebody's death. We'd have to go through the rest of our lives knowing that someone had died because we had failed to act. On the other hand, I had to ask myself, what would it be like to go through the rest of my life with my brother's blood on my hands? That's David Kaczynski, author of the book, Every Last Tie, the story of the Unabomber and his family. David is the younger brother of Ted Kaczynski, a brilliant, troubled, reclusive former math professor who began sending bombs through the mail in 1978, killing three people and injuring 23 others. When the FBI finally closed in on Ted Kaczynski after a nationwide manhunt that spanned years, it was because they received the ultimate tip. The Unabomber's brother had turned him in. In this special bonus episode, I speak with the therapist and writer Mark Epstein, whose work in his many wonderful best-selling books explores the interface between psychiatry and Buddhist philosophy. Mark and I will delve into the themes and ideas that present themselves in this absolutely extraordinary episode. If you haven't listened to What's Wrong with Teddy, which first dropped in season three, I hope you'll go back and listen, either before or after this conversation. I'm Danny Shapiro, and this is Family Secrets, the secrets that are kept from us, the secrets we keep from others, and the secrets we keep from ourselves. Mark Epstein, it's such a pleasure to have you on Family Secrets. Thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. Thank you. I'm curious what struck you when you were listening to uh, What's Wrong with Teddy? 
well, the first thing that struck me was, oh my God, you're asking me to listen to this this episode about Ted Kaczynski. I had no idea when you reached out to me that that's what it was going to be. And uh, I thought the the episode was extraordinary. And the humanity of the brother is what struck me. The vulnerability and honesty and courage of the brother, you know, really impacted me. And then the story itself was fascinating. I really had no idea. I had read one newspaper article about the brother turning him in, but I hadn't read his book and I had never heard him talk. And uh, so, you know, I was, uh, I, I, I was very into it right from the beginning. I think his, David's humanity and his sort of extraordinary spirit of, let's say, generosity toward his, I mean, there's just not an ounce of blame even or bitterness or anger. I heard none of that. I felt like this is somebody who really, really struggled with his brother's mental illness and was coming to terms with understanding that his brother was mentally ill. And then you know, discovering that, you know, coming to realize who his brother was, um, which is such an extraordinary part of the story, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. He really gets into Ted's early life. And, you know, the title refers to David saying to his mother as a kid, you know, as maybe a seven or eight-year-old kid, what's wrong with Teddy? And David idolized him. And I, I wonder... In some of the detail, which was all kind of new to me that I learned when he and I were having this conversation, but about his early life and then what happened to Teddy, both as an infant and then as a very young freshman at Harvard. I was wondering how that struck you. Well, I thought all of that, all that material in the first, uh, the first half maybe of the conversation, uh, where David, who's seven years younger than Ted, is talking about uh, their early life, Ted's early life, and the incipient signs of what probably was schizophrenia in Ted. You know, I'm wary of the diagnosis and uh, too much labeling. But uh, one of the things that I learned really in becoming a psychiatrist working in inpatient units in psychiatric hospitals for a number of years in my training was that schizophrenia is a real disease, you know, and some people really have it. And you can be a brilliant person and still have it. And it has the feel, I mean, we don't understand, science hasn't penetrated it, but it has the feel of, oh, this must be a genetic, organic, biological thing, because the symptoms are so distinctive. But what David describes is that, you know, his, his older brother, who, as you say, he, he idolized, got progressively more weird, more withdrawn, less social, more preoccupied as uh, he moved into his like late adolescence, you know, or mid to late adolescence, as I remember it. And David, who, you know, they went camping together, they did all kinds of stuff together. But at a certain point, he becomes uh, conscious of Ted having no friends and being kind of sullen and withdrawn and isolated and sometimes weirdly angry, I think. 
and says, you know, has that conversation that you quote with his mom, his loving mom. He makes a point, you know, they grew up in a loving household, an intellectual household, a, a house full of love and books and good relationships, you know. But uh, somehow Ted starts to drift off a little bit. And he, I think he goes to Harvard at 16 or something. He's got an IQ of 167. You know, he's, he's a math genius. He's clearly brilliant. And then uh, he gets to Harvard and um, he becomes part of a study, uh, one of these social psychology studies that uh, was popular in the, in the early 60s. There are some famous ones, uh, Philip Zimbardo in California and so on. But this guy, Henry Murray, who's a legendary figure in the education and psychology departments at Harvard, when I got there in the 70s, he was still around. He was doing a study to see how very brilliant Harvard undergraduates reacted to being uh, brutalized, basically, made fun of. That's how I remember it anyway. And Ted agrees to be part of the study and stays with it, even when he's being tortured. Uh, made fun of and so on because he wanted to prove that he could that he could handle it. Yeah, that was a really haunting thing that he said. Where he later, later when he was on trial as the Unabomber, and that study came up and the the abusiveness of that study and the the you know the trauma and the gaslighting and and he says I wanted to prove that I couldn't be broken. Maybe he was already broken. Certainly, it it would have made things worse. It would have made things worse for a, a completely healthy person. Yeah, I don't think it's enough to explain the schizophrenia, if that's what he had. People who are vulnerable can maybe be, you know, the, the illness seems to have a life of its own, but maybe some people can be tipped over if they're, if they're in the wrong environments. And that was certainly a t- toxic environment that uh, Ted Kaczynski was being subjected to. Yeah. I mean, when I when I was preparing for this conversation, I remembered that you had gone to Harvard and I, I, I didn't do the math. But were you there when Henry Murray was there? Henry Murray was at Yeah, I never took courses from him. I was there from 71 to 75. I was an undergraduate. I majored in uh, psychology, but they called it social relations there. And uh, graduate student uh, teachers of mine had studied with Henry Murray. And so I, I knew of him. He was a, um, a you know, a foundational figure. And a, he had no reputation uh, as being uh, any kind of problem, you know. So I was totally unaware of these kinds of studies. There were a couple of famous studies, one where a uh, psychologist got uh, college students to give electric shocks, uh, painful electric shocks to students to see who who would keep going. You know, they were instructed to keep going even when the the uh, subjects were expressing terrible pain. And there was another famous study that several movies were made of it in the past few years. Philip Zimbardo I, that I referred to before, where um, students were divided up into like prisoners and guards. And the uh, the guard students became increasingly sadistic. Uh, when when given room to uh, act out on the prisoner students. And uh, there were no checks and balances on these uh, social psychology experiments in those days that the researchers were sort of free or much freer to concoct these kinds of uh, processes, you know. And they're famous experiments because they showed how 
relatively good-hearted, normal people can, with just a little bit of environmental encouragement, be turned into Nazi guards. Or there are a lot of implications for what happened, uh, you know, in the war in Iraq and so on. So uh, we we learn from those studies, but the the, the people who were the subjects uh, certainly was was not a good thing. In those 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 same time those same days, you know, Timothy Leary was giving uh, LSD to prisoners and so on in uh, in Massachusetts. There was there was a kind of freedom for the psychologists to uh, see what kind of uh, information they could elicit from these kinds of things. One of the heartbreaking things about that chapter in Ted's story is that um, he he was underage, he wasn't 18, and so the school actually had to get permission from his parents. And his parents seemed really, as you said, really loving, thoughtful people. And, yeah, good-hearted people. Yeah, and his, his mom had this feeling of, well, maybe this will be good for him, and he, he doesn't have any friends, and maybe this will help him, and of course it's Harvard. Um, so maybe all of this will be a, a good thing. And that's why she gave permission. And there also seems like there's so much as the story progresses, as David narrates it, um, that has to do with a kind of a very loving second guessing that goes on in the family. Their mother also says to David when he's quite young that she thinks that one of the reasons why Teddy is the way that he is is because he had been um, hospitalized as a nine-month-old and unable to see his parents, um, and that when he came back from that hospital visit, he was changed and he stopped making eye contact. And it seems like there's throughout the story a sense of a kind of almost gentle personal culpability in a way, like thinking, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that, maybe I shouldn't do yeah. Well, that, you know, I mean, when he was nine months old, he had a rash, Teddy, and he went to, he was in the hospital for a week. And, and then when he, when he came back, he seemed different. But lots of kids, lots of kids have to be in the hospital. And when difficult things happen, when illness strikes, when one of the things I learned when I was in medical school from a very good family doctor at Mass General was this thing called um, attribution theory, you know, which is that we we may, when things happen when we get sick or when someone that we love gets sick, we we make stuff up about what the cause is when we don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, doctors used to call every everything they didn't understand uh, psychosomatic, you know. They were just they did the same thing. You know, if you had an ulcer, it was psychosomatic until they discovered that it was a bacteria that caused the ulcer, you know. Um, but people do that too. When accidents happen, when someone gets cancer, when you, you know, it's like, oh, it must have been this, it must have been that. And I think you hear that in this in this story. Not that a week in the hospital for a nine month old w- wasn't traumatic for the parents and for the child, but um, you, you know, you, uh, David talks in the podcast about the mother making him promise in the aftermath of that, you know, don't, don't ever abandon your brother. That's what he fears the most, you know, when, when David was seven. So the mother had obviously been uh, really affected by that, uh, that first separation from her baby and you can't blame her. But I see it more as the, you know, the first tiny signs of 
of what might have blossomed into schizophrenia, which usually doesn't show itself until um, uh, late adolescence, you know, your late teens, early 20s, the, the symptoms usually start to come. Um, and that seems to have been the case with Ted Kaczynski. We, you know, one of the things that struck me in the whole story for David was that there were these series of losses where he's very close to the brother, and then the brother retreats even from David and from the parents and sends, sends letters to the parents saying, you know, I don't ever want to speak to you again, etc. And so they lose contact. And then the whole thing of the, the reveal that maybe he's the Unabomber. So there's one loss, two losses, you know, each time there's another gulf that descends upon the relationship, you know, it's so tragic. Yeah. And makes it all the more extraordinary the way that he has absorbed and metabolized this life, this family, this life, this brother into his life as a, an adult. So the break that happens between David and Ted that is really the permanent break is when David, who has been living a kind of monastic life himself, he describes it as a pilgrimage, and his solitude is very much in the direction of um, wanting to know himself better, whereas Ted's is in the direction of getting angrier and hostile and blaming. But then David falls in love um, with a childhood friend, and that for Ted is a total break in the relationship. And he he cuts things off. He says, I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And there's this moment that also really struck me, and I wonder what you thought of it, where David makes this very gentle inquiry because he's now with Linda and they're getting married and they're going to spend their lives together. And he, he says, was Ted thinking that love is finite? Oh, that's interesting. I don't remember, I don't remember that phrase. He uses the metaphor of, of like pieces of a pie. Yes, I do remember. Yes, yes, yes. The whole story of David, I, I mean, that's the other fascinating thing in the podcast. I did a little research on the side after listening to it. David goes to Texas and digs a hole and covers it with like metal sheathing and lives in the hole for like a, for a couple of years. I mean, da David is emulating after going camping in the Yukon with Ted. You know, they have this the real the two of them go and and uh, really bond and are living in the wilderness. And then they they each go. Ted goes to Montana or wherever, and David goes to Texas and digs the hole. And that somehow comes out of that realizing that he wants to marry this girl who he knew when he was eleven and tracks her down and marries her. Um, and then tells Ted, and Ted responds as you're as you're describing. Like it's almost like David was his acolyte, you know, and now he's rejected the guru and and found another, you know, somebody else to bond with. And and Ted, as you say, you know, writes him off. And the woman that David marries is is. Um, is into Buddhism and and I think becomes a, or was already a professor of uh, religious studies and a Buddhist practitioner in in uh, upstate New York at Union College and I think you can hear in that phrase is is love finite maybe David's later uh, embrace of uh, kind of uh, spiritual understanding that he wasn't brought up 
in. They were brought up in a very academic, intellectual, non-religious, non-spiritual kind of environment, um, similar to the one that I was brought up in. But then I think you discover something about the infiniteness of love that would be very different from the way that uh, Teddy is thinking. I, I love that phrase, the infiniteness of love. And it, it feels, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to something that David said early in, in our conversation, which was that his family's core value was the life of the mind. And that part of that core value was that by developing your mind, you could develop your spirit and become someone who could really contribute to the world. But the mind was, was the portal or the mind was the vehicle. Yeah, well, I think they were definitely humanists. And, I, you know, I, I grew up in an academic environment in, uh, in New Haven. My father was a professor of medicine at Yale. And so I really understand that, that uh, you know, that belief in the life of the mind as being fundamental. But I've had the experience, you know, as a practicing therapist with parents who have these brilliant, uh, brilliant but asocial kids, you, you know, where the hope is, oh, my kid is so brilliant. You know, he's got an IQ of 150, 160, 170. He's doing math. You know, he's doing calculus in fifth grade kind of thing. And there's such a veneration of intelligence uh, that it's easy to overlook, you know, what's missing uh, and, and to try to get the help that those kind of brilliant but but remote kids need, and uh, um, I don't know that you can head off a psychotic illness, you know, that's destined to come in uh, in in one third decade. But some of those kids, some of those kids can uh, learn to relate. You you can hear in David's uh, talking about his mom how much his mom was wishing for that for his, her older son and hoping that it could be David who could help him, could be Harvard that could help him, you know. And then at the end, at the end, David is scared to tell the mom that he thinks that Teddy is the Unabomber. He waits to tell her until, until it's proven. And then he's worried, you, you know, and then, and then she gives that beautiful response, you know, that, uh, I know what you're doing. You're doing out of love, basically. Yeah, that was extraordinary. I mean, I, I, I'm hoping that people uh, listening to our episode will go back and listen to What's Wrong with Teddy. Oh, it's so moving. We'll be right back. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step, and you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because, God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of times you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, there's part of me that wants to talk about every single aspect of it and part of me that wants to leave some of the surprises in there as surprises. But I think I I do want to say for listeners that might not know the Unabomber story, first of all, one of the way the way that ultimately Teddy was caught is that he writes a manifesto. Um, He's already been killing people with these bombs that he sends through the mail. Um, And he writes a manifesto and he contacts newspapers and asks them to publish it and says, if you publish my manifesto, I won't send any more bombs. And so the manifesto is published and somehow that's how Linda sees it. Yeah, he had sent 16 bombs between 1978 and 1990. He'd sent 16 bombs, killed three people, injured 23 people. And then he writes to the New York Times and the Washington Post and says, if you publish my entire thing, I'll stop. And it was, I remember when that, when it was published and it was like, like, how you, you know, it was like a long, long thing. And they, they had big debates at the newspapers whether to publish it or not, because it was a sort, a sort of extortion. But they decided, you know, if they could save lives, it was worth doing. And um, the story that's told in the podcast is that, um, David wasn't really paying that much attention to the Unabomber or to the manifesto or anything, but his wife uh, read it and his wife had never met Ted, but had read the letter that Ted had sent to David saying, I don't want to be your brother anymore. I don't ever want to talk to you again. You know, when he was breaking off contact with both the parents and with David and she recognized in the syntax 
in the in the sort of drivenness of the prose, she recognized that uh, there was a similarity, and she like woke David from his uh, uh, torpor, you know, and said, "This could be your brother." You know, she sort of pulled him, kicking and screaming, into looking at it. And it struck me how careful they were from that point, from the point where where Linda says to him, I, I think that this could be your brother. They're very careful. I mean, they have experts look at it. They, they, yeah, they brought it to a psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah. And they then brought it to a forensic expert who tells them that he thinks that there's a 60% chance that these letters were written by the same person. Compa- yeah, comparing 60%, whatever that is. Whatever yeah. that is, it's sort of a yeah. terrible number because it's, it's, you know, if it were like 99.9% or if yeah. it was like 3%, but 60% yeah. is like... This just, is what they need AI for. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, just tipping, it's, yeah, AI would have solved this. And then David decides to go forward without telling his mom. And as you mentioned, and, and the, reason, the reason is, well, what if he's wrong and and why put her through that? I mean, every step of the yeah. way, there's an incredible amount of compassion and care. Well, and a real ethical dilemma. That's what struck me. You, you know, because he's deciding, do I, should I turn in my brother in order to save, you know, potentially save lives? Like, which is, which is worse, you know? Like, squealing on the brother who could potentially be, be uh, face the death penalty, you know? Or uh, allowing him to continue and possibly kill other people, and uh, he makes the decision to turn him in with the hope that he can uh, save him from the death penalty. Uh, you know that's sort of the uh, the Faustian bargain that he makes with himself, and uh, doesn't go so smoothly. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, um, you know, I found myself thinking about the flip side of compassion, if it's a flip side, which is cruelty, because. There were things that went on, you know, promises were made to David and Linda that they were going to be kept out of it, that they that they would remain anonymous. And the opposite of that happens. And it's it's a media circus and they have to, you know, hide from from the media. And there's a moment that he talks about it's the only it's the only time I heard a hint of anger in anything that he had to say completely understandably, which is that there was a comedian, there's a popular comedian at the time who made some just really terrible joke about, you know, these two brothers and one was the Unabomber and the other one was, you know, I'm not even going to say it. And there's this feeling, I wonder if you could speak to about when something happens in a family, you know, throughout this podcast, you know, we're now working on the ninth season of this podcast. It means I've had like 90 deep dive conversations about secrets with with guests. And it seems like shame um, is such a huge and universal feeling among, among people who have either kept a secret, had a secret kept from them, or, or had something happen in a family that is, you know, in, in, in Jewish terms, a Shonda, you know, yeah. that it's, it's like a, just a, a disgrace. Know, a disgrace. Yeah. And that it and that it spreads like some kind of stain across a family. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what it reminded me of. And it it's sort of it's more like an association than a than a direct uh, uh comparison. But um in my family, 
when I was maybe seven, eight, nine years old, I was playing Scrabble with my mom. And um, she had an old Webster's dictionary with a blue cover that uh, that we that she kept with the Scrabble set, and I I was looking up a word and I opened up the uh, the dictionary and I noticed in my mom's handwriting her name Sherry with a different last name that either than her maiden name or her married name, it was like Sherry Steinbeck or some name like that, which was not her maiden name. And I was like, what's this? And uh, it turns out my mother was married when she was in her 20s, before she met my dad, and her husband died, uh, had a a heart attack when he was like 28, 29 years old, and I never knew. And my father apparently never wanted to talk about it, and so, uh, because it was sort of, you know, made him feel bad, I think. And it wasn't until my father died, which was like 15 years ago, that my mom, who was then in her 80s, in the aftermath of my father dying, she started talking about the death of her first husband. And she had had to keep it, you know, like totally quiet. She gave the the wedding pictures to her sister to keep after uh, her husband died when she met my father and so on. So this, um, the, the need in the family to preserve the secret, you know, for the sake of somebody, because to, you know, face it head on, the Buddha, I've been, I've been really helped by Buddhist psychology uh, and Buddhist meditation. The Buddha's first noble truth, you know, when he said that life, it's usually translated as life is suffering. But the word that he used, dukkha, actually means hard to face. So he was saying, you know, there's something always in all of our lives that's hard to face. And when we, when we turn away, when we try not to look at it, that perpetuates our suffering, you know. So... I, I think all the stories that you're sharing are uh, often, if not always, about uh, what finally happens when we confront the secrets, you know? Exactly. And, and that unleashes, what that unleashes is that, that kind of infinite love feeling that, uh, that David is talking about in this interview. I'm curious, with, with your mother, yeah. was there that feeling? I mean, that it was, she was finally, finally in her 80s, you know, able to you know, to share and talk about this, this, this story. She talked about, I think it, I think it, it opened up a nice portal uh, between us. Now she's 99. And uh, what happened was that I got a a package of photographs in the mail from an old, from a college friend of my mom's from that time who had pictures of her and the husband and their friends that he had been holding ever since her husband had died. And, uh, and I put him in touch with my mom and, you, you know, I was hoping for a lot more, for more of a flow of love that would come out of it all. And my mom was more like, it was so long ago, you know, what do, what do I, what do I need this for? But, but, but it was nice. It helped her more in my dad, you know, I think the uh, damned up grief from the first loss to, to let that flow a little bit helped her to uh, uh, talk with, with her kids, me and my siblings, you know, about my dad. And I, I think it, it, it all needed to happen the way it happened. We'll be back in a moment with more Family Secrets. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? 
Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm preaching to somebody today who is waiting for God to give you your next step. And you don't know what it is yet. You need God to show you your next step. Because God, I can't stay where I am like I am where it is. This isn't going to work. I have to move on, but I don't know where. A lot of time you'll use it as an excuse. Well, I don't know how. I don't know where. I don't know what. God, if you show me. God, if you tell me. God, if, no, 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 no. You know enough right now. And if you needed to know more, he would show you. Hey, this is Stephen Furtick. I want to invite you to listen to my podcast, Elevation with Stephen Furtick. I am here to help you for the battles that you face in life, for the times when you feel discouraged, for the times that you need guidance from God. I want to give you the truth of what he says about you to help you rise to your full potential. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So this episode is the only one I've ever done where I had two guests on. And the second guest who comes on this episode is a man named Gary Wright. And I just found that one of the most moving parts of this whole story is that in the wake of Ted's conviction, and David does succeed in Ted not receiving the death penalty, but David and Linda and David's mom start reaching out to Ted's victims as, I don't know, a kind of, you know, something like a, not a reparation or, you know, like there's, it's just something that they have to do. They are absolutely compelled to do. And Gary Wright, who was a victim of one of Ted's bombs, whose life was completely altered by his injuries mentions at one point that he had 200 pieces of sh shrapnel removed and had to have three surgeries. And yeah, yeah, he had a computer store or something and that Ted blew up. Right. But 
when David calls Gary Wright and when eventually they connect, Gary has such a compassionate response. Um, so easily could have gone another way. You know, that that feeling of, it's almost, it's biblical in a way, right? It's like, it's, well, if it's, if it was your brother, then it's, it might as well have been you. I don't want to have anything to do. And many of, many of the victims did have that response. I don't want to have anything to do with anybody named Kaczynski. From a Buddhist philosophy perspective, I kept on thinking about the ways in which they end up interacting, becoming like virtual blood brothers, um, at one point David says. But Gary's, Gary's initial response to him is, this must be a tremendous burden for you, and there probably aren't many people that you can talk to about it who are sort of intimate with the situation and feel free to call me anytime. Yeah, well, that whole thing is remarkable. Not, not just from a Buddhist perspective, but I would say also from a psychodynamic perspective. One of the things that I realized is that, you know, Ted is convicted, saved from the death penalty, goes to maximum security prison where he writes and writes and, you know, sends his stuff out. Uh, becomes friends with the Oklahoma City bomber and with uh, one of the World Trade Center bombers and so on. But he won't talk to David. You know, his whole life, and he just died a year or two ago. Uh, the, the entire time he refused to have contact with David. Um, so then the, the, that, I'm glad you used that blood brother phrase, you, you know, because the thing in David, not just from a humanist, humanistic perspective, but also from a, such a personal Place. He lost the brother once, he lost the brother twice, and then he feels he feels compelled to reach out to the brother's victims, you, you know, and also, you, you know, he was given a big reward for uh, uh, turning the brother in, and he, he, he used that money, he made a fund with that money to, to help the victims, so it's even more than Gary. Um, but Gary was one of these rare souls who could hear where the overture was really coming from, I think. And we just responded like, like you didn't make this happen and I didn't make this happen. And in a way we're both victims and in that way we're bonded together, you know? And so let's talk. Uh, and this is, this has been hard for me, but I know it's been hard for you too. Uh, and so uh, uh, life is, life has this potential for suffering and, uh, and the only way to deal with it is to face it, you know, so we could face it together. And so they're, but each of them are remarkable. Yeah, they really are. And together there's uh, just some kind of mystical sense of like being unstoppable together for the good. David says so eloquently toward the end of our conversation, he talks about the balance between trust and self-protection. And... Mm -hmm. And then he says, I'd rather err on the side of trust. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's making himself so vulnerable, Re reaching out to all of those victims of the brothers' bombs, you know, and the urge towards self-protection would really inhibit those overtures, you know, uh, and, and the trust in, the, in uh, uh, some of those people's abilities to hear where he's coming from is uh, is the kind of trust that he's talking about—a deeper trust in our shared humanity. I think. And there's so much to be learned from it. 
it's it's the it's the opposite of circling the wagons. It's the opposite of hunkering down. Well, that kind of trust that kind of trust is what brings people to therapy, also. You know, because why would why would you come to a a therapist and open yourself up to this person who you really don't know, you know, and it's sort of a miracle in our, in our world that, 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 uh, uh, forum exists, you know, that two, two people coming together to say, uh, to say everything, everything that, that they're willing to share, you know, it's the same kind of vulnerability. Really. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's really true. That's beautiful. At the very end of the episode, or very close to the end of the episode, David says, mm-hmm. and it really made me think about, you know, these times that we're living in, and, and I mean, this is a conversation that took place several years ago, but these words feel even truer to me now. Yeah. He says- About violence. Yes. Yeah, yeah. you say it. <laughs> no, you say it. You got it. Right. He, he says, violence looks powerful, but violence is weak and destructive. Love- doesn't look so powerful, but is by far the more powerful force in the world. Yeah, I thought that that was like the Dalai Lama coming right through him, you know. Violence is weak, love is powerful, and we have to, you know, each of our our agenda can be to get rid of our own inner violence, you know, and that that's how to lessen the outer violence that we're all having to cope with. Mark, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been an honor and really just wonderful digging into this amazing episode with you. No, I'm so glad you you brought me into it. It really was an important thing for me. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.